evening and a very warm welcome to St Paul's Cathedral for this significant and, as you can see, very popular event. In a moment, Bishop Sarah will introduce our speaker. But before she does, let me introduce you to how the evening will go if you haven't been to one of these before. Rowan will speak for, as long as he likes, around 40 minutes. And then there will be an opportunity for questions. As I'm sure you will appreciate, questions are complex in an event like this. So what we invite you to do is to write your questions on the back of your programme. And when you have done so, to raise them in the air. Someone will come round and collect your questions and deliver them to us on the desk over there and they will be typed into a computer and by the magic of technology will arrive on the computer in front of Bishop Sarah. She will then ask, I hope you appreciate, some, not all, of the questions. You can also tweet your questions if you are so inclined. If you wish to do so, please use the hashtag JesusChristQuestions, all one word. <laughs> you can see um, whether, um, what else it joins in with, but I think we're pretty confident no one else has that hashtag. And then Bishop Sarah will ask Rowan the questions. We will end promptly at eight o'clock. And I hope you will appreciate that we need to whip our speaker away very swiftly, so um, he will not be available for personal conversation afterwards. You can buy his book, and um, I'm sure you would like to buy his book. Now, the problem with technology is when it works, it's brilliant. When it doesn't work, it's more taxing. So there is a bookstall on your way out if you have cash. But because of a power outage yesterday, um, they can't take cards there. So if you have cards and not cash, you can buy a book over there. Please use cash if you can. It will make um, our booksellers very happy. But if you only have cards, please buy them from the station over there. So before Bishop Sarah introduces Rowan, I would just like to have a personal note at the start. Um, I arrived in Oxford a little over 30 years ago now, frighteningly. I was um, terrified. I came from a comprehensive school in Manchester and this Oxford University seemed very strange to me. And I was very seriously considering leaving. And at that time, a certain Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity opened his home for an at-home. And he and Jane, week after week, welcomed students into his home. It was in the course of those meetings that I realised that not only could I stay, but I wanted to stay in theology for a very long time. So therefore, it is a great pleasure to me, in my very, very first floor event at St Paul's Cathedral, as Chancellor of the Cathedral, I realised I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Paula Gooder and I am Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral 
which is a role that oversees theology and learning in all sorts of different ways across the cathedral. Were it not for Rowan Williams, I would not be here today. And therefore, it is a very special occasion for me on my very first floor event as Chancellor to invite Bishop Sarah to introduce Rowan Williams properly. It's a real delight to be here this evening. Uh, my name's Sarah Mullally, I'm the Bishop of London, and it gives me great pleasure to be able to introduce our speaker this evening. Some of you will know that I was a canon treasurer at another cathedral, and one of the memories that will stay with me was at the Midnight Eucharist at Christmas. The blessing having been given, we would wend our way down the nave around the William Pye font, around the 32-foot Christmas tree and out of the West End doors. And there we would proclaim into the night that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word through, through whom all things were made animates Jesus' human existence, and it was right that we proclaimed it into the created world. It has been a real joy and mental exercise to have read William, uh, Rowan Williams' latest book, Christ, Heart of Creation. So I know that we're in for a treat this evening. Rowan Williams needs little introduction. But just in case you don't know, uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury for 10 years until 2012. Before that, he was the Archbishop of his native Wales. He is now Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, teaching and lecturing there, and in fact, all over the world. He has been the Professor of Theology at Oxford University, taught at various theological colleges, written an astonishing number of books on a wide range of subjects and has been a friend and teacher to more people directly or indirectly than we could get in this cathedral. Rowan is incredibly busy. He is in demand all over the world. He comes to us from Cardiff on the way to Ipswich and we are really grateful to him for coming to speak to us tonight. Would you join with me in welcoming Rowan Williams? Thank you so much, Sarah, and thank you, Paula, for the reminiscence of happy days in Oxford all those decades ago. Thank you also to all of you who are giving up this evening to listen and I hope to reflect and to ask and to share perspectives. This is a rather difficult environment in which to speak with any intimacy as you've probably noticed. I hope that at least it'll be possible to speak 
audibly and as I always feel obliged to say, if you can't hear me and you still want to, then uh, perhaps you can wave your arms around a bit and I'll see what I can do. But I genuinely hope that we'll have some semblance of conversation in this evening because the word made flesh on which we're reflecting tonight is also the word which draws words out of us to share good news with one another. What I'm going to do is to try and introduce the book that's already been mentioned and to draw out some of the main themes there, but then to move on and suggest two or three areas of practical and spiritual implication from approaching the theological questions in the way I've tried to do. So let me begin by mentioning what is in a way the seed for this book. Fifty years ago last December, Austin Farrer, then warden of Keble College in Oxford, died. It was a very bad month for theologians. Karl Barth died in December 1968. Thomas Merton died on the same day as Karl Barth. And then Austin Farrer followed them a few days later. I like to speculate on conversations in a heavenly waiting room. Austin Farrer was probably the greatest Anglican theologian of the 20th century. And one of the themes which he returned to time and again was this. Once you have understood that God and the world do not occupy the same space and are not jostling each other for room, you understand something which illuminates the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of the sacraments, Christian ethics, Christian mysticism, and a whole raft of other subjects. One of Farrer's greatest works was a book called Finite and Infinite. And if you think that this book is a mental exercise, believe me, it's Enid Blyton compared with Farrer's Finite and Infinite. But it set the tone for Austin Farrer's later theological work. God is not an item inside the universe. The universe depends on an infinite action, an infinite energy, present in actively sustaining every agency within the world. And precisely because of that, there can never be 
a simple contradiction between what is going on in the agency that we see in ourselves and around us and the agency of God. To avoid misunderstanding, obviously, things are done in the world which are not according to the will of God. But the point is that they couldn't be done at all if God were not acting. By God's act, sustaining, supporting the action of every living, active being in the universe. That's the key idea then. And it struck me that it would be worth exploring a bit further what Farah says in passing, that if you understand this, you understand the doctrine of Christ, perfect in divinity, perfect in humanity. The Christ who is unequivocally one of us and unequivocally the presence of God with us. A little bit mischievously, I decided to go straight to one of the most complex and sophisticated accounts of this doctrine there's ever been, and to start with a long discussion of what St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century has to say about all this. If you pick up Aquinas and look for his section on the word made flesh, you may well be startled or even rather put off. Aquinas asks, for example, could all three persons of the Trinity have become incarnate at the same time? Could there be more than one human incarnation of God? And so on. Did Christ as a human being experience faith, hope and love in the way we do? And so it goes on, chapter after chapter after chapter, getting more and more complicated until your brain really is reeling. But reading these texts some years ago, I remember having a kind of epiphany moment, appropriately, and thinking all of these, all of these very complicated questions boil down to one insight and one problem. The problem is exactly what Austin Farrer says it is. That is, how to clarify the fact that the difference between God and creation is utterly unlike the difference between you and me. God and creation do not occupy the same space. And the insight that Aquinas wants to spell out is this. Bear with me. When you look at anything in the world, 
there is a set of things you might say which tell you what kind of thing it is. And there's another set of things you say which tell you what this particular agent or subject is. So I might want to say that dogs have four legs and a tail and go woof. That tells you what kind of thing you're looking at. It doesn't in itself help you tell the difference between Fido and Rover. So you need to talk, looking at the world, about the essence that makes a thing the kind of thing it is, and about whatever it is that is mysteriously making up the sheer thisness, the uniqueness of this particular reality you're looking at. And for this latter idea, Aquinas uses the Latin word esse, meaning the act of being. The active reality by which we are this rather than that, by which I am Rowan rather than Sarah. And says Aquinas, when we talk about Jesus, what we say is this. What makes Jesus, Jesus, this unique human person, is absolutely bound up with and inseparable from what makes God the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the creative reality in which all things exist, be the Word. So what it is that makes the second person of the Trinity God in that way is exactly what makes Jesus Jesus in the unique way he has of being Jesus. Which means that if part of what we're saying about the everlasting word of God is that he or she or it eternally gazes lovingly into the depth of the Father, the source from which life arises, so for Jesus, the supreme defining reality in him is that capacity to look lovingly into the depths of the divine source, the divine parent. What makes Jesus uniquely Jesus is continuous with, indeed identical with, what makes the word of God the word of God. Now that is in itself a very abstract set of ideas. But it does at least save us from the idea that at Christmas what happened was that somebody living in heaven started living on earth. It saves us from the idea that in order to become human, God, as it were, had to hang up his clothes at the door. It saves us from the idea that Jesus, in order to be divine, couldn't have had real human freedom or human feelings. In fact, it deals with rather a lot of complicated questions, though it requires a bit of 
intellectual legwork. But that's what Thomas Aquinas is after. He wants us to be able to see that to affirm what we need to affirm about Jesus, we have to hold on to that idea of a divine action which animates and finds expression in the unique human identity that is Jesus of Nazareth. So we don't need to ask, what do you need to leave out of God in order for God to become human? And you don't have to ask, what do you have to leave out of the human nature of Jesus for Jesus to be divine? The funny thing is that it's exactly that kind of almost untroubled confidence in the unity of Jesus that you find in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't do Thomas Aquinas's kind of theology, which is probably why more people tend to read the New Testament than read St. Thomas Aquinas, quite apart from the fact that the New Testament is a book of you know, this kind of size, and the works of Thomas Aquinas are that kind of size. You don't, on the whole, see people reading Thomas's Summa Theologiae on the tube. You don't often see people reading the New Testament on the tube, but you know. But what do we read in the New Testament? Well, take what is certainly one of the earliest Christian documents we have, St. Paul's first letter to Corinth. Paul cheerfully tells us in the first couple of chapters that Jesus Christ, the anointed Jesus, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Words which, certainly for anybody who knew the Jewish scriptures, would immediately tell you that this was the immediate outpouring of divine life, the divine wisdom which arose from the life of God like steam from boiling water. And then, a few chapters later, Paul says that Jesus took bread and broke it and shared it the night before he died. And Paul feels no obligation to make this strange transition easy for us. How very odd that is. It doesn't seem to worry Paul that somebody once sat at table with his friends, tearing a bit of pita in two and passing it round, knowing the likelihood that the day after he would be executed, and calling that person the outflowing of the divine nature connected with God like steam rising from water. Paul doesn't seem to think that's difficult. Well, that kind of what you might call brilliantly clear unclarity in 1 Corinthians proved very unpopular in the early church. 
lots and lots of intellectuals in the early church did what intellectuals do. That is, they provided flawless answers to the wrong questions. <laughs> and for a couple of hundred years, people were, so to speak, pulling at Paul's sleeve and saying, yes, but. Surely, said some people, what you're really saying is that there was some phenomenally powerful heavenly being who briefly resided in Galilee. And Paul would have said, no, that's really not quite what I'm saying. Some other people would say, surely what you're actually saying is that there was a human being who was so impressive that he reminded you a lot of God. And again, Paul would have said, no, that really isn't what I'm saying either. And so it is that in the first centuries of the church, you have a series of what I like to call discarded solutions. The pile of crumpled paper is rising around the table as people scribble theories and say, I think I've got, no, I haven't, and starting again. And in the fourth and fifth centuries, a series of church councils finally lay down the rules of the game, as you might say. Whatever you say about Jesus, you've got to say that nothing less than God is at work here. Whatever you say about Jesus, you must say nothing less than complete humanity is at work here. And say the definitions of the councils, now it's over to you. But that is how the language of the Bible, as you might say, battles its way through a set of attempts at theoretical solutions. So as to come out with this set of prescriptions, if you want to talk about Jesus in a full-blooded Christian way, you have to say nothing less than God, nothing less than human. Now, after the definitions emerge in the fifth century, you've got a few hundred years more, especially in Eastern Europe, in the Greek Empire, a few hundred years more of debates about the detail, the refining of terminology, and you're well on the way to Thomas Aquinas. I'll spare you the details of the 7th and 8th century controversies, but enough to say that we're now in a new phase of Christian thinking, which in a funny way, very funny way, is closer to the New Testament than it is to some of the earlier attempts to sort out the balance of God and humanity in Jesus. Because now it's clear that you don't just try to do a kind of 40%, 60% breakdown of the divine and the human in Jesus. You have to say 100%, 100%. And you're going to need some words and ideas for that. But the force of all this 
back to where I started, the force of all this really has to do with that basic Austin Farrer insight. Actually, it is possible to be completely part of the created, finite world. And yet, for the immeasurable, infinite agency, energy of God to be there in the heart of it all. And that's the sense in which you can say Jesus of Nazareth is not only the presence of the power of the creator in the middle of the world, Jesus of Nazareth is the ideal creature, the ideal created being, allowing the creator to make him what he is, to bring to absolute fulfillment and freedom what he is made to be. And so, we can begin to see that in him, in Jesus, divine and human, creation finds its focus, its center, its climax, however you might want to put it. Well, in the book, there's lots more about those centuries in Eastern Europe, lots more about Aquinas and a bit about the Reformation and about how, strangely enough, John Calvin has a very good shot at putting this with clarity and force in his Reformation-era writings. But the last couple of chapters of the book pick up some more modern writers, including the great German Lutheran theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I'll come back to him in a moment. But having outlined something of the beginnings of the book and the shape of the book, I want in the time left to me just to outline for you three implications of approaching the question in this way, which bear quite strongly on our sense of who we are as believers, who we are as a church, what we are as a human race. First then, if it's true that in Jesus there is an absolute harmonious coming together, a coincidence of God and humanity without contradiction, then the truth is that it can never be right to think that God demands that we be less than human. If we were to think of a God who wanted us to be less than human, we'd be trying to think of a God who is actually in some way a bit jealous of us for being human. 
as if our growth in being human was some sort of offense to God being God. And that can hardly be right because the New Testament very strongly gives us a picture, especially in Paul's letter to the Romans, of how the whole purpose and narrative of creation is coming to expansion, joyful and glorious fulfillment because of Jesus. The more God is present in our midst, the more human we become. It can never be right to think that God wants us to be less than human or less human. And that in our spiritual lives, in our understanding of our humanity, is really quite a significant insight. If you think about the many ways in which over the centuries people have somehow had the message that God wants us to be less human than we really are, you begin to see the problem. In age after age, different bits of our humanity have been, so to speak, parked. God is interested in this bit of your humanity, but don't don't explore that bit because that'll, that'll upset him. That'll make God feel nervous. And whether it's the whole history of Christian attitudes to sexuality, whether it's the history of our attitudes to money and economic justice, and to take a very neuralgic point these days, whether it's a matter of our approach to the world around us. We've often got this wrong and somehow supposed that what matters in our humanity is some rather small area of it, not the bit that's involved with the rest of creation, not the bit that's involved in bodily experience, not the bit that's involved in social and economic experience, but on this basis, it's crucial that all of our humanity is, as we might say, porous to God. And the one thing God does not ask us to do is amputate some area of our humanness. God certainly asks us to do some very demanding things with it, but that's another story and nobody's ever pretended that this is going to be easy. But you see the point. God is not a threatening rival for us. We are not threatening rivals for God. When St. Augustine declares that the service of God is perfect freedom, in a phrase that happily got into the Book of Common Prayer, that's what he's saying. To serve God is not to set aside who and what we are as human, to keep God calm. To serve God is to grow into the full exercise of what God makes us to be, because that's what God wants. So the first 
perhaps most significant implication of approaching Christ in this way is the affirmation of God's concern with the wholeness and the flourishing of our humanity. God is not out to diminish us or demean us. And there's another implication of this as a sort of subset, which would take a bit longer to spell out, but it's worth thinking of. God and humanity in Jesus are, so to speak, a non-competitive pair. And for Jesus to live in that abundance of divine life without conflict, rivalry, that, as it were, releases into the world the possibility of not regarding competition between human beings as the last word. There is something in human relationship beyond competition and the struggle for living space. And that means that to understand this non-competitive element in our doctrine of Christ is to have our eyes opened to the possibility that maybe competition is not the last word. The same God, after all, is acting at some level in all of us. One great divine action, sustaining every person in this cathedral this evening. I often like to say that the doctrine of creation is not about something that happened a long time ago, but something that's happening now. And if it's the same divine action in all of us, there is something in all of us which goes beyond the jostling for space and the struggle for winning and losing. Second implication is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer spells out. In the 1930s, Bonhoeffer delivered a series of lectures on the doctrine of Jesus Christ in Berlin. They were attended by large numbers and caused much excitement and much confusion. He never wrote them down, and so we, ha we have got to depend on the notes of his students. And I'm sure Paula will confirm this, that the idea that any of one's lectures could be reconstructed in full from notes of students isn't always the most promising news for an academic. Reading those notes is a little bit like seeing some stunning work of art through frosted glass. You can see the outlines. You're not quite sure of the detail. And Bonhoeffer went on to build on those lectures in the book he was writing at the time of his arrest. He never completed his book on Christian ethics, but we have a large number of drafts and fragments. And to me, one of the most striking and moving elements in these notes and drafts 
is where he says on the basis of a doctrine of Christ rather like what I've been outlining, he says, this means that just as Jesus is simply there for the world, doesn't have to compete with the world or conquer the world in an obvious way, so the church, the body of Christ, doesn't have to spend all its energies protecting itself. Of course, says Bonhoeffer, the church takes up room in the world. There's a community of visible people. There's the occasional fairly visible building. But the reality of the church is a bit different. Underneath all that, the visible community, the visible building, is there to take responsibility for the well-being of God's creation. And the more the church gets tied up in defending itself, the more it risks losing that essential aspect of its life. He's thinking here of his own experience in the later 1930s. As many of you will know, Bonhoeffer gave a lot of his energy to organizing and helping those Christian groups in Germany which were resisting Hitler. The groups called the Confessing Church. And there were acts of great heroism and acts of witness in that setting, which Bonhoeffer never wanted to repudiate. But writing from his prison cell, in one of his letters, he says, the trouble was that in the confessing church in the 1930s, we were that little bit more concerned with protecting ourselves as a church rather than protecting the most vulnerable victims of Hitler's tyranny. We didn't do it for the Jews or the Roma or the disabled. We didn't do it for the marginal and persecuted. We did it for ourselves. And he leaves that as an uncomfortable question mark and leaves that difficult question with the church. Or rather, a difficult challenge. Wherever you're aware of some sort of conflict between church and society or world, ask yourself, Am I interested in defending the security of the church or simply being the church and so being the presence of God's compassion and God's transformation wherever and however it happens? It was why Bonhoeffer was quite content to think of a future for the church in which it was, in many ways, much less visible much less institutionally complex. You may agree or disagree, but the point I want to make is simply that for him, it grew out of that very same insight.
that the relation between God and what God has made is not one of competition of two realities side by side. And the last implication that you might want to draw out is something I've touched on briefly already. God has made us to be human. God has given us a unique, particular role within creation. Within creation. Not at a distance from creation, not floating six feet above creation, but within creation. The physical world we're part of is a world we depend on. That's part of being human. And the well-being of that physical world depends in some measure on us. There is, in God's creation, a toing and froing of gift. We as human beings have something to give to the well-being of the created order around us. It is what gives us life. You might say that we're reminded by this that our creation is a neighborhood. We live in a neighborhood. We live in a dwelling place, which is what the word ecology refers us to. The balance, the interaction, the giving and receiving within creation, that is part of being human. And so, if God is calling us to be fully human, if our full humanness is not something that prejudices or diminishes God, equally our full humanness doesn't deplete or demean the created order. And at a time of unprecedented crisis, in the human relation to the material world, it does rather help to know this. We belong in a neighborhood whose shared good is significant for each and every one of us and each and every aspect or part of the created world. Well, there's a good deal more that might be said about that and indeed about the other issues I've touched on. But what I've wanted to do this evening is not so much to give you a, a precy of the book, but to suggest some of the ways in which looking afresh at our doctrine of Christ in the context of a doctrine of creation seeing how our doctrine of Christ fills out and enriches our doctrine of creation, how all of that can help us grow towards a new way of being before God in the world. Call it, if you like, a new spirituality, but certainly a new way of being human and understanding our humanity. A way of being human which, by acknowledging 
our dependence on the Creator, and our interdependence with creation, warns us against isolating our good, our projects, our purposes over against the rest of creation or the rest of humanity. It tells us that in discovering that, we move further towards the freedom that God wants us to exercise, to exercise with the grain of his creative, loving work, to exercise with the grain of the whole of what God has made, human and non-human, all focusing on this notion at the heart of everything. God and the world do not compete. God's own act of being, what makes God to be God, and what particularly makes God to be God, the Word, the Word in whom all things come into being, that that is fully, unequivocally, at work in the living and dying and rising of a human being, a part of the created order, in whom we see what each and every one of us as creatures may gradually grow towards. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is a, just a reminder that if you want to ask a question, uh, do uh, send them in. And uh, we may not get the chance to answer all of them, but we'll try our best to do them in batches. Can I just, uh, I, in a sense, start? I was very struck um, by the uh, image of what, what makes Jesus Jesus is the capacity to look into the eyes of the divine parent. And then that concept of the competitiveness is not the last word. How do you hold that intention, which I suppose with what we so often see, uh, because the truth is even within the church, we see it as a competitive world sometimes. No. That <laughs> is. Surprise, surprise. Oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> mm. It's not that competition is some kind of absolute evil. I wouldn't want to say that at all. But the problem is when we work with a sort of mental map, whether of the church or the world, in which at some level, you doing well is always going to make me worse off. And my doing well makes you worse off. And that's a very powerful mythology, I'd say, in the human world. The more we recognize that I cannot flourish unless you flourish, the more we're freed from that. And that's how I'd see the, you know, the heart of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the meaning of the word communion, you could say. That I understand that for me to be fully myself needs you to be fully yourself. It's by no means easy. This is not a glib program for you know, instant reconciliation. But think of the examples both in personal and in international life. In our personal lives, 
let's say within a family, it would be very bizarre if a parent decided that the well-being or success of a child was a problem for them, that somehow they were less themselves. It happens, doesn't it? And the other way around. But it's bizarre, and something in us recognizes it's bizarre. Likewise, if we look at the wider world, we are at the moment, in various ways, locked into all sorts of zero-sum games where it seems that one nation's well-being can only be affirmed at the expense of others, where we have rhetoric from the White House which seems to conceive the entire world in stark ideas of winners and losers. And you've always got to be on the winning side. And is the result of this to make the world more stable, more dependable, more kind to the vulnerable? Well, no, it isn't, is it? This doesn't work. And I very much like the analogy which many people use, that in a choir or a band or a rugby team, doing well means everybody doing well. And anyone within that context trying to do well at the expense of another wrecks the entire activity. It loses its meaning. So can we think of the whole of creation on the analogy of a rugby team? Ideally the Welsh one, of course. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the point, I think. We, of course we compete, of course we in certain areas, we need criteria of relative success or failure. Of course we do. But what's the bottom line in our relations? Interdependence or winners and losers? And I think that, that's something we have to go on obstinately saying as loudly and persistently as we can. Thank you. Uh, we're getting some questions around um, the vision, God's visions for human f uh, flourishing. Um, and one of the questions asked, does disability have a place in God's vision for human flourishing in all its fullness? That's a very searching question, isn't it? Because, of course, the very word disability, you could say, begs the question, doesn't it? So... The first thing to say is human diversity, including diversity of capacity, is not an evil. There are things which we learn from those we call disabled, those of us who don't call ourselves disabled, but things we learn, we could not otherwise learn. There are extraordinary gifts given. It's the great insight, isn't it, of Jean Vanier's Lache communities, that the last thing we ought to believe about the disabled is that they somehow have nothing to give. At the same time, I think it's helpful, perhaps significant, to be reminded that 
God does not want avoidable suffering, avoidable deprivation, or whatever, and we need to work intelligently to see what we can do to minimize that. So in a world where there is diversity, where there is, it seems, a persistent presence in the human spectrum of people with different abilities, I'd say we don't need to panic about that. Where certain kinds of challenge, what we call disability, actually impede someone's freedom, freedom to give what they are, we need to ask what can we do to modify, avoid, or whatever. But I go back to the Lush community, which is certainly where I've learned more than anywhere else something about the, the folly, sometimes of even using the word disability. Yeah. And, and following on slightly from that, um, you said uh, God is not out to diminish or demean us. And the questions come in, what would it mean uh, if Christians lived like that were true? Um, possibly the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> In all seriousness, I think that the models that Jesus gives us of the kingdom of heaven, the parables of the kingdom, in St. Matthew's Gospel especially, put before us various ways in which people are so enthralled and compelled by the vision and presence of God that they let go of projects to keep themselves rich or safe and just go for it. The man who finds the treasure buried in the field, mm. the merchant and the pearl of great price. Here, oh, here is something so extraordinary. I really can't be bothered with the anxieties that I've stored up around myself. So, yes, I think if we were ready to learn this, the signs of God's presence and God's ruling presence, the kingdom, would be that much more visible. And it would also be a community where I hope and trust people aware of their poverty at different levels, their pain, their confusion, their distress, their sense of exclusion, where they would feel they could genuinely count on being welcomed. Because this would not be a world of winners and losers. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've talked about that, uh, the impact of what you've been speaking about on us living our lives as Christians. Uh, there's a question here about the role of the sacraments. Mm. What does this mean for the role of the sacraments within creation? How can we celebrate them better to reflect what you've said about the nature wow. of mm. Christ? Yes, brilliant question. <laughs> yes. Good question um, there, somebody. Yes, indeed. Well, there's, there's a whole further series of lectures to be given and conversations to be had about the implications of this for the sacrament because the practice of the sacraments says to us, I think, here is something 
drawn from the stuff of the world, water, bread, wine, which when used in this context actually carries the full meaning, the full significance and liberty of God's action. It somehow opens up something about God's action. This prosaic lump of stuff that is the bread shared at the table is going to carry into me, into us, something of God's very action. And that means I look around at the whole world and think, oh, you know, this, this stuff stuff is much more interesting than I ever imagined. It, underneath the surface of the world I look at, bubbling away is the act of God. And in certain circumstances, that can burst through and transform. So our sacramental life is yet another way in which we embody this sense that the created world, instead of being something right outside God's action and presence, is always sustained by and shot through with the divine. And to, well, I'm speaking as an Anglican of a certain Catholic tradition, to bow down before the consecrated bread of the Eucharist is also to have your eyes opened to what you must bow down to in the whole world around, to see the stuff of the world shining with life. And I can only say experientially, you know, that's what I've found sacramental devotion to be really about. It's not, oh, God is here and nowhere else, but God is here. Where else is he? There and there and there. The vision lifts and opens. Thank you. We'll look forward to the uh, next book. <laughs> really? <laughs> We've talked a bit about uh, the understanding for the role within the sacraments within creation, uh, and you've touched on this little, a little bit, but uh, the question's come in about, uh, that says, does who we say, sorry, does who we say Jesus is effectively, effectively and actually determine who he is for us? Let's have that again, just to make sure I've got it. Does who we say Jesus is ah. effectively and actually determine who he, he is, is for, for us. us? Yes, very interesting. One of the things which I suspect goes wrong in theology, has gone wrong in theology, is pulling those two things too far apart. When St. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, I don't think anywhere in his mind is a distinction between who I say Jesus is and who Jesus is for me, Paul. I think he's saying for me and for us, because it's not an individual business alone, for us who are trying to live in the company of Jesus, who we are discovering him to be, the way in which he works in our lives, kindles our hope or our imagination, just pushes us steadily towards the question, so 
Who is he then? What do we have to say to make sure we're saying as much as possible to make sense of the way in which Jesus transforms me and us? Look at the scale, the range of the difference Jesus makes to me, to us, and think, so does that mean I've got to connect him with the ultimate transforming, change-making life that is God. That's how the logic moves. If you forget that it's that way round, if you start from, well, this is who Jesus is, this is what the creed says, um, now make what you like of that, it's not entirely surprising if people say, well, I can't connect with that. But what if you say, look at that life, which is lived in a kind of dialogue with, relationship with Jesus. Look at the life of somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or the life of my other great hero from that period, the Russian nun in Paris, Mother Maria, Maria Skoptsova, who also died in a concentration camp, having been arrested because of her role in uh, protecting Jewish refugees in Paris at the time of the Nazi occupation. Look at a life lived like those lives in conversation with Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is for them? And how does that work? And does that suggest that that conversation might also be for you a transfiguring, liberating matter? That's that way round, I think. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned Paul. Uh, why do you think Paul uh, said so little about what actually Jesus Christ did in his life? <laughs> yes, indeed. It's, a, it's an old question, isn't it? Um, two sorts of answer, both of which I think have their place. One answer would simply say, well... Paul is writing to people who, who probably have other sources for knowing the basic story, and he doesn't want to go over it all again. That's a little bit of a shortcut, because I do wonder myself why that's the case. But of course, Paul is writing at a time when the Gospels probably don't yet exist certainly not in anything like the form we know them. What become the Gospels are sets of narratives strung together, traditions passed down in local communities. Um, and Paul can't say, well, you can look this up in the Gospel of Matthew, because there isn't one. Mm. So what is, what is Paul concentrating on? He concentrates on just two things. One is, what we know about Jesus is that his life was a life of joyful surrender to the will of God. We know that. We can fill in the details in other ways. And then secondly, we know that the climax of that life of joyful surrender was Jesus' acceptance of a death which he regarded as in some way liberating for all God's people. And then, of course, Paul believes God raises Jesus from the dead to set his seal on all 
that life of devoted, loving service. That's what Paul really needs to come back to, he feels, again and again. Because that's where the real tipping point comes, the real life-changing moment. Mm. So within that, he may very well think there are probably other people going around with the stories. Mm. But I I need to underline that. Mm. That's how it finally works, that God's own act of wisdom and power poured into Jesus reflects back to God as loving service and obedience. The loving obedience is more costly than we could ever imagine because that life ends in torture and death and God again reflects back sort of to and fro all the time God reflects back to say yes that life is so precious to me that I lift it from death and hold it up before the world to see Mm, thank you that's very helpful Um, you talked about um, which which is often something I say that the body of Christ doesn't have to spend its time defending itself what sort of practical suggestions would you have to, to give to the church where we become overly protective of ourselves? Um, don't. <laughs> um, That's it's, cheating, I think. I know. <laughs> I've never been a strategist, <laughs> as, uh, as many will tell you. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> Mm. It's crucial for any practical sense of how we live in the church to remember that the church is God's, not ours, that God's commitment to be with us doesn't depend on our getting exactly the right strategy, and that that's, again, the bottom line. But the worst thing we could do, or one of the worst things we could do, is treating that as a sort of alibi and saying, well, God will look after it. No, of course we need to think in practical terms, what does the well-being of the church require? Because the well-being of the church, again, is to do with the well-being of the world. So, the church, in navigating its position in society and so on, will need, I think, to be asking how does this or that bit of our life express the open door which Jesus sets before us? How does it express the possibility of enhancing the human experience of those in the neighborhood? It can be as simple a matter as the multiple use of a parish church for the community. As simple a matter as what we've been doing in one of the churches in Cambridge, um, which went through a major restructuring some ten or more years ago, allowing the worship space to be reduced in size so that a very extensive ministry of presence in the community for the homeless, for children, refugees, increasing so that all that could be developed. And of course, one of the things that happens is that the worship space now fills up because of the rest of it. 
it's, it's not a simple equation, but that's the kind of question you ask. Not how do we, how do we survive, but how do we express that commitment to the well-being of those among whom we have been placed. And that will involve some risks and some uncertainty. But the alternative is for the church somehow to be less than the church, to become just another human society interested in policing its borders. Oh, thank you. Um, we've talked a bit about the church. Um, there have been some questions, uh, in a sense, about um, our environment and uh, the natural world. Uh, and one here says, how can the church begin to reconcile the interdependence of humanity and nature with an economic system that is designed to flourish at the expense of the natural world? Well, you can't. Um, an economic system designed to flourish at the expense of the natural world is an economic nonsense, and a moral nonsense, and a theological nonsense. And the church ought to have a bit of a nose for nonsense. It doesn't always, but should try. And the challenge we're up against at the moment in so many areas of our global politics is what feels like an absolute willful blindness to the long-term effects of an economic system such as has been described. I spent lunchtime today with the Bruderhof community in South London. For those who don't know, the Bruderhof is a, a radical Protestant group with its origins in the radical reformers of the 16th century, pacifist, agrarian, living in community, families living together in community, doing basic handicraft and farming and so on. And we got round to talking about the nature of their witness in the world. And something that came into focus in the discussion was the Bruderhof community do these things which are profoundly ecologically friendly, not because they want to postpone the ecological apocalypse, but because they believe these are good things to do. You know, this is how you live harmoniously. This is how you live in a non-exploitative and respectful way in creation. It's a no-brainer. Why would anybody, any Christian, want to live otherwise? And it's that sense of doing something which respects the sacramental integrity of the world just because it's a good thing to do, not as a panic measure to avoid disaster. Mm. That has a lot more mm. life and a lot more energy mm. in it than some of our mm. rhetoric about mm. ecology. So it's possible for churches to be beacons in this respect, to do these things not just as damage limitation, but as a sign of what they truly deeply care about as creatures before a loving creator. Mm. I'm delighted that the eco-church movement mm. has increasing traction. I was delighted last weekend to visit the Benedictine Monastery at Stanbrook in North Yorkshire, 
where the sisters moving from a monstrosity of a Victorian building have created a brilliantly ecologically sensitive new building and set of policies. We can do this, and we should. But I am struck that actually often still, often our narrative is because of the concern of, yes. the, you know, yes. the impending yes. sort of doom. How do we begin to, you know, what are the practical things that we do that changes our language and narrative of that? This is why I point to communities like the Bruderhof, because they have a positive story to tell. We certainly ought to know by now um, thinking back to a certain referendum a couple of years ago, that mm. purely negative campaigning tends not to work as well as a sense that here is something worthwhile in its own right. And that's the message we ought to be giving. So we should be worshipping in a way that shows delight and reverence in the physical surroundings we're in. We should care about beauty and simplicity in our worship and our common life. And that's partly how we get across the message. This is not just an emergency provision. Mm -hmm. Of course, the emergency concentrates the mind wonderfully, as they say. Um, it's very hard to deny the significance of this, though plenty of people try. So let's, let's see if we can tell that positive story. Mm -hmm. This is a world bursting with divine meaning, conveying divine beauty, transmitting divine life and grace. Mm, thank you. Draw the consequences. <laughs> Not this is this next question isn't completely linked to it, but anyway, um, if Jesus is nothing less than God and nothing less than human, what should we expect from the second coming? <laughs> Ooh. It's great to be asking the questions for a change. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what should we expect from the second coming? Well, let's go back to scripture and see what the first generation expected. And Jesus himself, for that matter. The expectation, I think, is that there will come a moment where the work that Jesus began on earth, brought to fruition in cross and resurrection, is finally, so to speak, wrapped up within the whole creation. Christ comes, therefore, to fill the whole creation with his grace and to offer it to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15. So what we expect from the second coming is, I think, perhaps best expressed in terms of looking forward that moment when Christ's action, if you like, is released into the whole range of the created order and brings it to its fulfillment in virtue of precisely his life as perfectly human 
and perfectly divine. How that happens, I don't know, and I don't know what to expect. The New Testament gives us a number of pictures, some, like St. Paul in Thessalonians, very pictorial, the Lord coming in the clouds with the angel's trumpet. Some elsewhere in St. Paul, Romans 8, and um, indeed in John's Gospel, much more apparently to do with something more like I've described, the, the bursting through of Christ's presence in everything. And who knows? We don't know the day or the hour, says Jesus. We don't even know the manner. We have images to feed us and prompt us. But I think that's how I'd approach it. Mm, Difficult. <laughs> thank you. And I've got a, just a, a couple of last questions. The first one is, who is Jesus for you? Who is Jesus for me? The ground of all my hope, the definition of what I long and pray to grow into in terms of obedience to and intimacy with God the Father, the one who holds together a human race that's always trying to tear itself apart, who gives the breath of his spirit so that we share life, not fight over it. The one whose death and resurrection are the center point of all human history. Go on all night and not say anything really. Um, yes, if all the things he did were written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, as somebody put it. Thank you. And having, having put this book together, in a sense, what for you personally, how did it touch you personally and in a sense your, your own spiritual life, your devotional life? What was your, in a sense your takeaway from having put what is an academic book together, but I suspect that touches you deeper than just your mind? Right. Now I'll see all the rude notes she's put in the margin. <laughs> Perhaps I could just read a Indeed. little bit from the preface. At times in the history of Christology, it is hard to see the wood for the trees, and I guess that there will be sections of this book which will have the same effect. The minute calibrations of vocabulary by a 6th century Byzantine writer, the logical fish bones picked out in the language of essay, the act of being in medieval scholasticism, the labored discussions of merit and satisfaction, the textual complexities of people handling the legacy of German metaphysical debates, all these will seem a long way from a congregation singing before the throne of God above, or Jesu lover of my soul or for a Welsh Christian, Yesi, Yesi, Rutin, Vigon, Jesus, you are all sufficient. Or an Orthodox believer bowing to the ground before an icon of the Saviour, or a pilgrim kissing the smooth, chilly stone in the basilica at Bethlehem, where Mary is said to have given birth. 
Yet these expressions of dramatic commitment to Jesus of Nazareth are precisely what generate the thickets of analysis and speculation that have grown up across the centuries. Thickets, forests of analysis and speculation. But the book excited me in the writing of it. I'm probably in a minority of one <laughs> But I found, I found it deeply enriching simply to be listening to brothers and sisters in the body of Christ exploring with a kind of intellectual exhilaration the new world into which they'd come. And a little bit of that exhilaration I found communicated itself to me. And it all comes back to singing before the throne of God above and please a lover of my soul, of course, um, and singing them together. So, yes, a sense of the delight of being in the company of Christians praying and thinking. I think that's what I'd want to take away from the book myself. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, I said that um, the book was a joy and good exercise for the mind. Uh, and this, uh, this evening, it has been a joy to have listened. And I think we've also exercised our minds. But you have communicated to us uh, something more of Christ uh, and opened up to us something more of the Christ that we encounter. So we are very uh, grateful for that. Can I thank you all for coming and also for all your questions. It has added to our conversation this evening. I'm, a, I'm told I need to remind you about the book uh, stalls, uh, but it is worth getting the book. But would you join me in thanking Rowan Williams? Thank you. I think we're going to make an exit. Thank you.